With Hashem's assistance, we are learning Babu Kama, Daf Kuf Yudzayim, page 117. We begin on the bottom of 116b. Four lines from the bottom. Hahu Gavra, there was a certain person. The Achvi Akari, the Chit, the Beirish Galusa. The oppressors had come, they were looking for food. And this guy, so he showed them a pile of wheat that belonged to the Exilarch, to the leader of the Jews, the political leader of the Jews in exile. Asalakameda Rav Nachman. So they came in front of Rav Nachman to judge this case. Chaive Rav Nachman Lashlume. Rav Nachman obligated him to pay, even though he hadn't actually stolen it, he had just directed the oppressor to take it. He was obligated to pay. Yosef Rav Yosef Achare the Rav Huna Barchia. So Rav Yosef was sitting behind the Rav Huna Barchia. Yosef Rav Huna Barchia came to Rav Nachman. And Rav Huna Barchia was sitting in front of Rav Nachman, who had just made this psak, said this halacha. So Amar Le Rav Huna Barchia, the Rav Nachman. So Rav Huna Barchia says to Rav Nachman as follows: Dina Iknasa. This that you required him to pay was that a monetary obligation or was that a fine? So he said to him, it's actually the Mishnah. If it's because of the Gazlan, meaning the thief who took it, he didn't actually take it, as Rashi explains, but actually he just directed the oppressor to take that piece of land. There's an obligation to, to give him another field. And we establish that the case is talking about where he showed the oppressors this piece of, this piece of land. So therefore, what do we see? We see that there's an obligation, which is a monetary obligation. Basar Nafik, so after Rav Nachman left, Amr Rav Yosef the Rav Huna Barchia. So Rav Yosef turns to Rav Huna Barchia and says to him like this, My What's the difference to you, Idina Iknasa, on the top of 117a? What's the difference to you if we're talking about a monetary obligation or a fine? Either way, you have an obligation to pay. Amr so he responds and says like this, Idina Gamrina If it's a monetary obligation, so then we can learn out to other places, which is an indirect damage, that there would also be a monetary obligation, right? Because the thief over here, he didn't directly take it, but rather, he caused someone else to take it. That's an indirect damage. So if this is a monetary obligation, then we'd be able to learn out to elsewhere. But if in fact it's just a fine, so we wouldn't have the ability to learn out from this case to other places. Hold on a second. How do you even know that you can't learn out if it's a fine? Maybe you can learn out if it's a fine over here. Maybe we make a fine elsewhere. Tanya, and we have a Bryce that seems to indicate that we do not learn out from one knas, one fine, to another place to say that the fine would apply elsewhere as well. As follows. But Rishonahayu, I remember originally they used to say, Hametame. If I say someone takes a Kohen's truma, the special type of the Kohen that can only be eaten by the Kohen and only if it's pure, and he makes that, that fruit impure, so now the Kohen can't eat it at all. If someone takes someone else's wine and pours it to idolatry, so wine that's poured to idolatry is forbidden to be used, can't be eaten. So both of these cases, so there's a damage that's being caused that you can't see on the surface. So they said that there's a fine in these cases that there's an obligation to pay. And then in the end they said, There's another case that we're going to create an obligation to pay, and that's if, let's say, you took a group of fruits that were truma, that could only be eaten by a coin, and you mixed that, that group of fruits into other fruits that could have been eaten by anyone. So now this entire group, we don't know what's what, and therefore it can only all be eaten by a coin. So that caused the damage, because the person who owned the fruits, so, so now he has to sell it for less, because he can only sell it to a coin. So you also have to pay for such a damage as well. Chazru in. So now the indication is over here, it's only because they changed their minds to add this case on as well. If they hadn't changed their minds, we wouldn't have known that in the third case that there would be an obligation to pay. My time, huh? what's the reason? Perhaps because the first two cases are a fine. And we can't learn how to a different fine from the other fines. 
So Gemara answers, not necessarily. It could be that you can learn that one fine from another. But over here, we had a reason to, to assume that we wouldn't say it in the third case. Because originally, before they added on the case of Madama, where you mix up the Kohen's things with regular fruits, they originally held that when do we create a fine? Only in a case where there's a great loss, where you ruin someone's fruit that they can't eat it at all. Matam, you make it impure. Or you take someone's wine and you pour it to idolatry so it can't be used at all. So that's when they said that there's a but the third case where you're mixing up the coin stuff with a regular person's stuff so it still has value it can still be sold to a coin so that's not as great of a loss so there they didn't create a fine but theoretically we could have learned that one from the other and in the end they held that we do create a fine in that case because even though there's a small loss it's not as great of a loss we still say that we want to prevent such a case from happening and therefore they said that we create a fine in that case as well now the Gemara challenges. Is it true that we can indeed learn that one fine from the other? Avu, the father of Rabbi Avin, had the following brisa. This is a slightly different version of the brisa that we had previously. It says like this. Originally they said, someone who causes a priest's food that can only be eaten in purity, he makes it impure. And someone who takes Kohen's food, mixes it up with regular people's food, makes it all have to be sold to a Kohen. So he causes a loss. So both of these cases, there's an obligation to pay. That was the original thing that they said. And here, in this version of the brisa, so the thing that they added on later was, that even if someone takes one that belongs to someone else, pours it to idolatry, there's also an obligation to pay for that as well. Chazruin, the indication here is, it's only because they changed, they added it on later. But if they hadn't added it on, we wouldn't have been able to know that in the case we're pouring, when someone poured one, you would have an obligation to pay. My time, what's the reason? Perhaps it's because, because we don't learn out one fine from another. Sigmar says, no, it could be that we in fact do learn out one fine to another, but there's a different reason why we had originally thought that in regards to a case of pouring the wine, that there's no obligation to pay for that. Originally, they held like Rabbi Avin, and in the end, they held like Rabbi Yirmiya. We're going to see immediately what they held. Originally, they held like Rabbi Avin, because Rabbi Avin says, in regards to Shabbos, if someone throws an arrow and it goes a length of four cubits, four arms lengths. So the law is that if someone throws something or moves something in a public domain, this this amount of space, so he's transgressed something that has an obligation of death. Now, what happened? At the same time, while it was going through the air, so through its trajectory, there were some clothes and ripped through them. There's no obligation to pay for that damage. Why? So, so what this means is as follows, that the question you can ask is like this. At which point have you transgressed the Shabbos? So naturally we would assume that at the point when one has actually gotten the thing to go, this four cubits, that's when the person has transgressed. However, he says something slightly different. He says, since in, in order for it to get that four amos, in order for it to, to reach that four cubits, so it has to be picked up. So since the picking up is necessary in order for it to reach that length, therefore the picking up itself creates the transgression. There's an obligation from the beginning. And therefore, since he has an obligation to be killed from beginning to end, and while it was flying through the air, it caused damage, which was monetary. So it's considered that you have a monetary obligation at the same time as an obligation to be killed. Whenever we have those two obligations coming at once, we have a concept of whatever is the greater punishment, that's the only punishment he gets. And that's why over there, Rabbi Avin says there's no obligation to pay for the, the monetary damage. So similarly, in our case, where somebody picks up a, a bottle of wine and he plans to pour it for Avodah Zorah, for idolatry, so when he pours it for idolatry, he has an obligation to be killed. Someone who does idolatry has 
has to be killed. But when he picked it up originally, is it considered that that's part of the idolatry that he has obligation? At the same moment when he's stealing it, when he picks it up, he stole it. So is it considered that the, the two things happened at once? According to Rabbi Avin, it would be considered that they did happen at once because the picking up is necessary in order to pour it for idolatry. So even though when he picked it up, he wasn't yet doing idolatry, it's considered all part of the act that created an obligation for death. So according to Rabbi Avin, it's considered that you have an obligation for death at the same moment as having an obligation to pay something monetary, and therefore there's no obligation to pay the monetary value. That's what the sages held originally, and that's what they said, that in such a case, there's no obligation to pay. In the end, when they said that there is an obligation to pay, it's because they held like Rabbi Yirmiya. The Amr Rabbi Yirmiya, Rabbi Yirmiya said as follows, When you pick it up, that's when you have acquired it, it's considered that you stole it. That's when there's an obligation to pay. He holds that there's no obligation at that point when you pick it up. It has nothing to do with the action of pouring out the wine and, and doing it for idolatry, creating an obligation for death. That's something that happens later on. He completely separates the two parts, and therefore the obligation for death does not come at the same time as the obligation to pay the monetary thing. And therefore that's why the city just said at the end that indeed there is an obligation to pay the monetary value, the monetary damage that was caused. Rav Huna Bar Yehuda once came to this place called Be'av Yoni. He comes in front of Rava, Amar Lehi, and he says to him, Have you had any, any interesting stories that have happened to you? Amar Lehi, he says to him like this, Yisrael Sha'ansu Avdi Kachavim, there was a certain Jew who a, a group of non-Jews had come and they wanted to take away his property. Instead of giving him his own stuff, so he gave someone else's stuff, he showed them someone else's stuff. So this case came in front of me, and I obligated the person who had directed the non-Jews to pay back the person who they ended up taking it from. Amr Leh, so Rav Huna Bar Yehuda says to Rava, Ahadar Uvdalamari, you gotta undo this case, because we have a Brysa that says, not like you, Ditanya, the Brysa says as follows, Yisrael Sha'ansu Adekachavim. Let's say there's a Jew who non Jews are coming to take away his stuff, and instead he directs them to the money of his friend, Potter, there's no obligation on the Jew to pay. However, if the Jew picks it up and takes it in his own hand and gives it to the non Jews, then there would be an obligation. I'm a rabbi, and rabbi adds on one more thing. Even if he didn't actually physically pick it up, but he just showed them specifically, he said, take this thing. He didn't just send it in a general direction. That's considered like he actually picked it up, and therefore there will be an obligation to pay for that. There was a certain person, that some non-Jews came and they were trying to steal from him. And instead he directed them, he showed them the wine that belonged to Rav Mari, the son of Rav Pinchas, the son of Rav Chizda. So these non-Jews said to him, please pick it up and bring it with us, we're going to the king's castle. He in fact listened, he picked it up, he brought it with them. So they came in front of Ravashi Patrine. So even though he had picked it up, Ravashi said, there's no obligation on this person, this Jew, for, for helping them out. It's not considered that he's picked it up. So the sages said to Ravashi, that if he picked it up and he helped them out, so if he touched it, he has an obligation to pay for it. It's considered like he stole it. So he says back to them, that's only if the non-Jews or whoever's trying to steal it have not already set their eyes upon it. And this guy is helping them and he's giving it to them. But if they've already set their eyes upon it, it's considered that it's burnt. It's already considered like it was stolen by the non-Jews. So even if he goes and he helps them out, it's considered that it was already stolen by the non-Jews and therefore there's no obligation on the person who's helping them out to pay for this stolen thing. Esi Rabbi Avodah Ravashi, Rabbi Avodah challenges Ravashi's statement. He says like this, Amr Anos, the Brisa says like this, if there's somebody who's trying to cause someone else to steal, he says as follows, Hoi Shedli Bekiya Amr Zeb, 
hand to me that bundle of wheat, or hand me that cluster of grapes. And indeed, he handed it to him. So the person who handed it to him has an obligation. And that case is talking about a case where the person already set his eyes upon that thing. He's ready to steal it. So when we see that there, there is an obligation on the person who's helping him out. So how can you say that this person has an obligation? So Gemara says, Ravashi responded, What's the case over there? That the person who's trying to force the other one to, to help him out to steal it, he's on the other side of the river. He can't access it himself. So Dekonami, we can actually deduce that this is true. Because the case says, pass it to me. It doesn't say, give it to me. So it's a good proof. And therefore, in that case, that's why there's an obligation. But in our case, where the non-Jews are forcing this Jew to pick it up, so since they'd already set eyes on it, they could theoretically pick it up themselves, so the non-Jew does not have an obligation to pay for the, for the fact that it was stolen. Hahushuta, there was a fisherman's net. That two people were arguing about it. One was saying that it was his. The other one was saying that it's his. Also one of them goes, and gives it over to the officer of the king. I guess the officer of the king had come to him and said to him he wants some kind of taxes, maybe. Amar Abai says, the guy who took it can say, When I gave this thing, I was giving my own thing. And therefore it doesn't have an obligation to the other guy. Only Rava, the call Kamina Rava says, does he have the power to do that? Can't be. We're not even sure if it's his. Elama Rava says, Rava says like this. What we do is we place him in a band until he brings it back or brings back something similar, and he stands and goes through the whole court proceedings. We have to figure out who it is before we can say that he can just give it over to the king's officer. Now the Gemara gets involved in a lengthy story. There was a certain person. He wanted to show this non-Jew had come to steal from him. He wanted to show him to the straw of his friend. He came in front of Rav. Rav said, By no means shall you show this to the non-Jew. So the Jew says, I'm going to show him, I'm going to show him. Meaning, he was going to disregard what Rav said, and he was going to give over the money that belonged to a Jew to the non-Jew. Yosef Rav Kahana came to Rav. So Rav Kahana was sitting in front of Rav. Now the halacha is that if a Jew gives over the property of another Jew to a non-Jew, it's called a moser, he's given it over, the halacha is that such a person as Chayiv Misa is an obligation to be killed. So Rav Kahana was sitting in front of Rav, Shanti Lekavimine. Because this person did this, so Rav Kahana pulled out his windpipe. He gave him a death penalty. Kari Rav Yilavei, so Rav said about this thing that Rav Kahana had done, Your sons have become faint, lying out in public places, like a wild ox that's been ensnared. Just like a wild ox, once it's been ensnared, they don't have any mercy on it, this animal is going to be slaughtered. So too the money of a Jew, once it falls into the hands of a non-Jew, so the non-Jew never gives it back. So meaning that when one Jew gives over the money to a non-Jew, so and it belongs to someone else, so it's considered as if he was moister, he gave it over. The non-Jew, once he set his eyes upon it, he's going to take it for sure, and therefore it was correct that this person was killed. Amarlay, so Rav says, Rav Kahana, he says to him, Rav Kahana, until now, Habu Yivani. So we had these Greeks, that they didn't care if we, through our courts, we did some kind of death penalty. But now we have the Persians who are in charge of us. The they care if we enact the death penalty. They say, they scream out, you're killing, you're killing. Kum sakla ardi Israel. So you have to get out of here. You have to go off to the land of Israel.
And when you go there, so you're going to go to the yeshiva of Rabbi Yechanan, you have to accept upon yourself not to ask any questions of Rabbi Yechanan for seven years. And the Marsha explains that the reason that he told him to do this is because since he had gone, Rav Kahana was a student of Rav. Since he had gone and done something in front of Rav without giving Rav the chance to say the psak, to say the final halacha, even though he was correct in what he did, but there's a concept of Meir Halacha Bifnei Rabbi, that he did something in front of his master, in front of his teacher, it's not permitted to do that. So, so what Rav said is that he should go down in order to get a kapar, in order to get an atonement for this, he should go down to the Shiva in Israel, in the land of Israel, and act in a very humble way, show that he's going to be beholden to a teacher, not ask any questions to Rabbi Yechanan for seven years. And this will be an atonement for this thing that he had done. Azil, so Rav Kahana goes, he finds Reish Lakish there in the yeshiva, he's going over that shir, the, the Torah that had been said over by Rabbi Yochanan that day, and he's going over it with the other sages there. Amar Lahu, so Rav Kahana turns to the sages and says, Reish Lakish Hecha, where did Reish Lakish go? I want to speak to him. Amar Lehamai, so they say to him, why? Amar Lahu, Haikusha Vahikusha, Vahipiruka Vahipiruka. So he says to them, I have this question and this question, I have this answer and this answer. Amr le Reish Lakish. So they told Reish Lakish about this guy who just came, who's got all these great questions and great answers. Also Reish Lakish, Amr le Rabbi Yechanan. So Reish Lakish goes and tells Rabbi Yechanan, Ari Alami Bavel. There's a line that's come up from Babylonia, meaning there's a great person that's come. Tomorrow, look out for him. So the next day, so they placed Rav Kahan in the front row in front of Rabbi Yechanan. Amr Shmaisa. So Rabbi Yechanan said over a piece of Torah, and Rav Kahan did not ask any questions because he had been told not to ask anything. Shmaisa, another, he said over another piece, actually, again, Rav Kahan didn't ask any questions. So, being that Rav Kahan wasn't asking any questions, so they moved him back to the back row. And the Marsha explains that each of these rows, there were seven rows here, and each of these rows were based on a, a, a level. If you were a greater person, had greater questions, you were a greater sage, so you would sit in the front. If you were a lesser sage, so you would sit in the back. So he had been moved all the way back. Basra. He was all the way in the back row. So Rabbi Yechanan says to Rabbi Yechanan, The line that you were talking about, he became a fox. He didn't say a word. Amar, so now, so if Kahana says to himself, Yehi Rava, he says to God, it should be your will, God, Dahani these seven rows that I was pushed back, it should be in place of those seven years, meaning, I was so disgraced, so to speak, by being pushed back these seven rows to be all the way with the kids, the people who don't know anything, so it should be in place of those seven years that I was supposed to disgrace myself and lower myself. The Amar Li Rav, that Rav said I should do. Kamakari, he gets up on his feet, Amar Li Nahadarabaresha, and he says, I want to be sitting in the front. Amar Shmaisa, so now, so so Rabbi Yechanan says over a piece, Va'akshi. And so he asks a question. Rav Kahana asks a question on Rabbi Yechanan. Ukmi bidar kama. So they put him in the front row again. Amar Shmai said, Akshi. Again, he, the, Rabbi Yechanan says over another piece, and, and Rav Kahana asks another question. Rabbi Yechanan hava Yosef asheva bistriki. So Rabbi Yechanan was sitting on seven pillows. Shafi lechada bistrika mitoite. So when Rav Kahana asked this good question, they took away one of the pillows of Rabbi Yechanan. I guess these pillows were perhaps a sign of honor, and his honor was being lost. Amar Shmai said, Akshi le. So again, he said another piece, Rabbi Yechanan, and Rav Kahana again asks on him, until they take away all the pillows from underneath Rabbi Yechanan. Until he was sitting on the floor. So Rabbi Yechanan was an elderly person, and his eyebrows were very long, covering his eyes. So he says to the people around him, Clear away the, the eyebrows from my eyes so that I can see this guy who's asking me these great questions. They moved it away with a comb made out of silver. So Rabbi Yechanan looks at Rav Kahana and he sees that Rav Kahana looks like he's laughing at him. And Rashi explains that the reason that he looked this way is because he, he had a wound on his mouth that, that gave him a cut, such that it looked like he was, he was laughing. So he thought, Rabbi Yechanan thought, that Rav Kahana was laughing at him based on all these questions that he had asked him.
So Rav got really upset. Because of that, Rav Kahana died. Lamachar the next day, Amr Lahur Biechan on the Rabban and Srabiechan says to the sages, Khazisa Labavla, Hechi Avid, did you see what he was doing? Did you see what this Babylonian Rav Kahana was doing? He was laughing at me. Amrulay. So they said to him, Darchehachi, that was his way. Meaning his face looked like that. It wasn't like he was smiling at you, Khazvasham, heaven forbid. And felt horrible what, what had happened. So he goes to the cave where they had buried Rav Kahana, Chaza, and he sees the Hava Hajrle Achna, where onto the top of Kuf Yudzayin of Beitri is 117b, that there's a snake there that's protecting the cave, not allowing anyone to enter into the cave. So Rav Yechanan turns to the snake and he says to him, Snake, snake, open your mouth, let me get through, in order that the teacher should be able to enter into where the student is. He was referring to himself, Rav Yechanan, as the teacher, and referred to Rav Kahana as the student. The snake didn't move. So Rabbi Yechanan changed his, uh, his way of saying it. He said, let the contemporary come in to speak with his friend. Still, the snake didn't move out of the way. Please let the student, he referred to himself now as the student, let him come into the master. He referred to Rav Kahana as the teacher. The snake moved out of the way. So now, Rav Yechanan came in there, he dove into God, he prayed to God, and he brought Rav Kahana back to life. And he says to him, If I would have known that that was your way, that your face looked like that, I wouldn't have gotten upset. I thought that you were laughing at me. So he says to Rav Kahana, please come back, please come back to the yeshiva. So Rav Kahana says, Listen, if you can pray to God that I'm not going to die again because of you, I'm, gonna, I'm happy to come back. But if not, I'm not going to come back. Because it could be that this you were able to bring me back to life this time. It was a one-time deal. You were only able to do this nace, this miracle one time. I'm not willing to take that chance again. Tyre, he woke him up, Ukme, he picked him up, Shaile called Sveka the Havale, and Rabbi Yechanan asked him all the questions that he had, Upashtimnihale, and he answered all the questions that he had. And Rashi points out that after the story, so actually Rav Kahana brings proof from elsewhere that Rav Kahana went back to Babylonia. That's basically the end of the story. And the Gemara just finishes off by saying, And because of this story, that's why Rabbi Yechanan had said, Amri. I originally thought, Rabbi Yechanan says, that we here in Israel have the Torah. But the truth is, that it's they in Babylonia who really have the Torah. Because he saw how great Rav Kahana was, how well he knew the Torah. He realized how great the Torah learning was in Babylonia as opposed to in Israel. There was a certain person, a Jew, who a thief came to him, and this Jew directed him to the silk adornment that belonged to Rabbi Abba. Yosef Rabbi Abo, Rabbi Chanino Barpapi, Rabbi Yitzchak Nafcha. So Rabbi Abo, Rabbi Chanino Barpapi, and Rabbi Yitzchak the blacksmith, they were all sitting together. Yosef Rabbi Lav Gabayu, Rabbi Lav was also sitting along with them. They thought that they could create an obligation on the person who had directed the thief based on the following Mishnah. Donis Hadin, if let's say there was a judge who judged a case, Zika Sachayev, and he said that the person who really, in truth, did have an obligation to pay. He said he doesn't have to pay. And the person who didn't have an obligation, he made him pay. Or something which was really pure, he said it was impure. Or something that was really impure, he said it was pure. So whatever he's done is done. And the judge has to pay for it. So even though it's an indirect cause of damage, because he hasn't directly done anything, nevertheless he still has to pay for it. So therefore they prove from there that in this case as well, there will be an obligation to pay. So Rav says to them, Rav said, as follows. The reason that there's an obligation over there is because it's not talking about an indirect case. Actually, the judge, when he said that Reuven, let's say, has to pay Shimon, he actually took the money from Reuven and he gave it to Shimon. And that's why the judge has an obligation to pay back. It was a direct damage. So you can't prove it from there. Amri Lay, so they said to Rabbi Abba, who had gotten his thing taken away, 
Go over to the court of Reb Shimon ben Al-Yakim and Reb Shimon, I'm sorry, Reb Lazar ben Pedas, the Dani Dina Dagarmi. They judge cases which are indirect cases, and they'll be able to help you. Also, the Gabayu, Chavim Masnisim. So he went to them, and they said that there is an obligation based on the Mishnah. In Machmas Gazlon, we said there that if it's because of the thief, that's why the people who had come to steal took that piece of land. So he has an obligation, the thief has an obligation to pay back another, another field. And they said that we established that the case is talking about where he, all he did was show them this piece of land. And therefore, we see that it's an indirect cause of damage, and nevertheless, there's an obligation. So therefore, in this case as well, there would be an obligation on the one who directed the thieves to take this silk adornment to Rabbi Abba to have to pay Rabbi Abba back. There was a certain person that someone else had given him a silver cup to watch. So the, the thieves came into his house and the person who lived there, so he takes the silver cup and he gives it to them. So this case came in front of Rabbah to find out if there's an obligation on the person who gave the silver cup over to pay back the person who had given it to him to watch. Patre. So Rabbah said that there's no obligation for him to pay. Or Abai, so Abai says to him, He was saving himself. Now he didn't have to give the thieves anything else because the thieves were happy with this silver cup. Ella Amar of Ashi, so of Ashi says like this. This is how we determine it. Chazin, we see. If this person is a wealthy person, so then the thieves, when they came in, they came in to steal from this guy. And indeed, the guy saved himself by giving the other guy's cup. So therefore, the person who is watching the cup has an obligation to pay the owner of the cup. If he's not a rich guy, so when the thieves came in, they actually came in to steal this cup. And therefore, this person is not considered a gun. He's not considered that he stole it and saved himself by giving it over to the thieves. So he's not going to have an obligation to pay back the owner of the silver cup. There was a certain person that he had a wallet full of money and the money was set aside that if someone was in captivity, let's say a Jew had been captured by non-Jews and they were requesting a ransom, so this money would be for those people. So some thieves came in. So the person who was watching the money takes the wallet and he gives it to the thieves. So they come in front of Rav Patre. He says there's no obligation for this person to pay. Again, this person is saving himself with the money of someone else. So Rav responded and says, There's no greater case of saving someone who is captive than this person. Obviously, he didn't have any money that day. So he was giving over this money in order to save himself. So there's no greater saving a captive than that. Meaning, this person has used the money for exactly the purpose it was meant to be used for. Therefore, it's not considered that he stole the money. There was a certain person He brought his donkey onto the boat Before the other people had gotten on the boat Because his donkey was there The boat was starting to sink There was a certain person that came So he took that donkey Threw it into the river And the animal drowned They came in front of Rabbi Rabbi said there's no obligation on the person Who threw the animal into the water He doesn't have to pay for the damage that was caused One's not permitted if, let's say, someone is about to be killed. You're not allowed to take someone else's money and steal it in order to save yourself. He says, no. The difference is because this animal or this person who owned the animal is considered like a rodev. Someone who's a rodev is running after someone else to kill him. And we're going to see that such a person, so the person who's being ran after, is allowed to destroy the thing that belongs to the person who's running after him. It's Rav according to his own reasoning. Rabbi says, Let's say you have Ruvain running after Shimon. Ruvain is trying to sh- kill Shimon. And Ruvain, the murderer, so 
so he breaks someone's utensils. Whether we're talking about the utensils that belong to the person who's being ran after, or any other person, there's no obligation on the person who is the murderer. Because as he's running after the person, there's an obligation to kill him. So there's a concept of killing, but the rabbi when you have an obligation to be killed, an obligation for monetary damages, you only get the obligation to be killed. If the person who's being ran after breaks something, which belongs to the person who's running after him, there's also no obligation. Because we're afraid that if we create an obligation on the person who's about to be killed, if he causes any damage to the guy who's trying to kill him, so then he's not even going to save himself because he's going to be thinking about the fact that he's going to have to pay money if he causes any damage to the guy who's running after him. But if the person who's getting ran after causes damage to anyone else, there is an obligation to pay for those damages. The is forbidden for a person to save his own life by stealing from someone else. If let's say, Ruvain is running after Shimon, Ruvain is the murderer, he's trying to kill Shimon, and then there's a third person who's trying to kill the murderer. In order to save the person from getting killed, and on the way he breaks something, whether the things that got destroyed belong to the person who was being run after, or whether it was anyone there's no obligation for the person who is trying to save the guy who was about to be murdered to have to pay for any damage that's caused. This actually doesn't make logical sense. Ella, but they said this anyway, if we don't say this, no one's going to be bothered to save someone else if he knows that if I cause any damage to anyone else, I'm going to have to pay for it. So he's not going to try to get involved in, in order to save someone's life. We begin the Mishnah. Shatva Nahar, if let's say, this is a continuation of the previous case, let's say someone's a thief, he steals from someone else a piece of land, and then after he steals the piece of land, so a river overflows into the piece of land, ruining the piece of land. So the thief can say to him, take your piece of land as is. Begin the Yomar. Tan Rabban. We learned in the Brisa. Hagaisel stole mechaveri. Vishot fanar. Same case. If someone steals a piece of land from his friend, and then the river overflows, ruins the field. Chayv lahamad leisod ha'acher. Divrei Rabbi Lazar. Rabbi Lazar says he has to give him a brand new field. B'chachamim. The sages say, Amir laharishal chalafanecha. He can say to him, Take your field as is. But my kamev. What's the argument here? Rabbi Lazar darish ribuye umi ute. Rabbi Lazar, so he has a certain method of learning out the verse in regards to a shvu, in regards to a swear. And the way it works is like this. Let's say, Ruven gives Shimon something to watch, whatever it may be, an object or a piece of land, whatever it may be. And now Shimon, so he swears that the thing got lost, it got stolen, whatever it is, and then it turns out that he's lying. He actually wanted to take it for himself. So such a person who's sworn like that is found to be false, so he's considered a Gaza and he's considered that he stole it. And we're going to see very soon there's actually a question whether or not it's possible to swear in regards to a piece of land and thereby become a thief. So whether or not you have the ability to swear will determine whether or not you're considered a thief, and therefore whether or not you're going to actually have to return a new piece of land, or you can just say, take the land as is. So Rabbi Lazar, he learns that this certain type of drush, a certain type of understanding of the verse. It says like the Vekichish Bamitoi, in regards to someone who's falsely swearing, so he's denying that which his friend claimed. Ribui. So that's including many cases. So when it says in a certain case where he gave him something to watch, it's coming to exclude other cases. The verse is any case where he will swear falsely. So when it says that a second time, it's coming to include many cases. When we do this type of drasha, this type of understanding of the verse, so it comes to include all cases. So it's coming to include every single thing that you can swear about such a thing and become a thief. What's coming to exclude? The only thing that is excluded is a document. And the reason is, as Rashi explains, because the document, it doesn't have any intrinsic value, it just represents something else. So in such a thing, you can't swear. However, the sages, so they learn a different type of understanding of the verse, as follows. When it says, he shall deny, so it's saying a general rule. When it says, in regards to something that's given over to him, so it's saying something specific. 
when it comes and says, or anything, so now it's coming to say another general rule. Klalu protoklal, when you have a general rule, a specific and a general rule, this type of understanding, so what it teaches you is that the only things that are included are things that are similar to that specific thing that was mentioned. Just like the thing that was mentioned, which is a thing that you're giving over, it itself has value and it's something that can be moved. I've called it a moment. So to anything that's movable and it itself has value, so that's what's included in this concept. So in regards to a piece of land, you can't swear. and it can't be moved. Also excluded is a slave. Because we find that conceptually, the concept of a slave is connected to the concept of a piece of land. Another thing that's excluded is a document. Even though it's something that moves, it doesn't intrinsically have value. Now we have another brisa which would be problematic based on the understanding that we just explained. Let's say somebody steals a cow, which is a completely movable object. And then a river overflows and kills the cow. Again, a realizer here says that there's an obligation on the person who stole the cow to give a new cow to the person who he stole from. That's what Rabbi Lezer said. The Chachamim, Chachamim say, You can say to him, Take your cow as is. So again, we see that they argue, even though this is something which is a movable object, which according to everyone you can swear about. So how can you say it has to do with swearing? How can we explain that argument? says, What are we speaking about over there? For example, where a person stole a field from his friend. The same case as the previous case. And there was a cow upon that field that he had stolen. And before he even had a chance to do any kind of chazak, any kind of acquisition of the cow, along comes the river, the river overflows, destroys the field, destroys the cow. So now, the cow is considered completely attached to that piece of land, no different than the piece of land, and then we'll have exactly the same argument between Rabbi Lazar and the Rabban, whether or not we say that it's possible to have a swear in regards to the piece of land, and thereby also in regards to the cow, that will determine whether or not he's considered a thief and whether or not it's transferred into his possession.